0: Hello everyone and welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz.
1: The following offer expires 31st of August, participating retailers only. Make the most of this summer because it's going to be gorgeous. There'll be blue, cloudless skies, rolling countryside, beautiful beaches and warm balmy seas. To get out there and enjoy it, book your Mercedes-Benz in for its free summer health check as soon as you can. We'll top up the essentials like your windscreen washer fluid will leave your air-conditioning smelling delightful and will even get your car sparkling inside and out. And if for any reason summer doesn't turn out as expected, never mind. At least you'll be able to enjoy your car. Visit mercedes-benz.co.uk to book your free summer health check today. Unmissable offers from Mercedes-Benz.
0: I'm Ed Foster and I'm joined by editor Damien Smith on my left, features editor Simon Aaron. And a very special guest in Simon Taylor. Simon, a, a warm welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much. Uh,
0: for those, all I think 90% of you will know exactly who Simon is without any explanation, but for that very small percentage, you haven't. Uh, writer, historian, commentator on television and radio, and a very keen historic racer yourself as well.
2: Well, a very keen but rather slow <laughs> historic racer. I mean, uh, it's, it's rather embarrassing when one spends one's life perhaps one weekend watching people who really know how to drive racing cars, and then the next weekend trying to do it yourself and getting it horribly wrong. But it kind of keeps things in perspective, I think.
0: Now, Simon is obviously famous for the Lunch With series. And you have, over the past 10 years, you have done 125 Lunch With pieces for Motorsport magazine. So what we thought we'd do today is discuss all of the guests, how they came about and all the stories associated with them. And obviously to be uh, to, to properly lunch with, we're having lunch today. And I can tell you to, to be authentic to the articles, uh, Simon has just had a, a beautifully presented, not very English wrap and washed down with some sparkling water.
2: It was very important in all these rather glamorous lunches that I had all over the world. I mean, everywhere from Canada to New Zealand, Um, I always stuck to water because when you're talking to these people, a lot of them are pretty sharp. Um, Max Mosley, who was the first one I ever did, this series never set out to be something that would happen every month. I was sent by the then editor of Motorsport to do an interview with Max Mosley because I knew Max from way back in the 60s when we were both uh, trying to race Clubman's cars. He was almost as bad a racing driver as I was. And uh, he was then the president of the FIA, and of course, being a brilliant barrister, he was extremely good at making a journalist think what he wanted them to think. I knew him well enough to be able to work my way through some of his uh, clever um, sort of fences and ditches that he would put in the way of the conversation. And that's why I got sent. And I went to Monte Carlo, we had lunch sitting in Casino Square, It seemed to go pretty well. Um, He was certainly very interesting to talk to. When I got back to London and submitted my copy, the sub-editor headed it lunch with Max Mosley. And that kind of started the trend. Uh, Readers wrote in and said they quite liked it. Uh, The editor then said, well, you better do a few more. And I then did them every single month uh, until this month. Uh, However, the significant thing really was that When they started, they were a normal length, Um, three pages of the magazine perhaps. And it was really when Damien Smith joined the magazine and said, look, we've got to try and do something a bit different. If you can write five and a half or six thousand words and make it interesting, I will give you eight pages. And that was really a great breakthrough because it then allowed me to sit down, if the... um, the guest was indulgent enough, and usually they were prepared to do this. Uh I could sit down with them for three hours. Or in the case of John Watson at quarter to seven we were standing in the dark in the pub car park and I was desperate to leave and I couldn't <laughs> shut Watty up. Um so we we had I, I had the ability really to go much further uh than most interviews would would be able to do, most journalists would be able to do. The other thing, the whole point about having lunch, is that if a journalist is interviewing um, a, a personality, a driver, whatever, in a press conference, there are huge pressures of time. And also, because it's a press conference and there's probably a PR standing behind his shoulder and there are all sorts of worries about saying the wrong thing and upsetting the sponsor, it's always a very stilted affair. If you're actually sitting down and having a relaxed lunch, and even if I'm only drinking sparkling water, I try to make sure that the, uh, the guest has whatever he likes to drink, you have a, l- a relaxed lunch and it is extraordinary how people are then able to talk in a much more honest and direct way. And that's really been the key, I think, to uh, making these things work.
0: Well, you mentioned Damien giving you a huge number of pages there. I think we should we should say at this juncture, Damien, this is gonna be your last motorsport podcast. Surely mixed emotions, you won't be around this table eating sandwiches next month. Yeah, I'm
3: gonna miss I'm gonna miss this very much. You know, the 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 high points of being editor of motorsport, producing the magazine every month and the creative process of doing that with a team of people is um is something I'm going to miss tremendously, and obviously this, the podcasts, which are have always been great fun to do, and and uh, the listeners have been kind enough to respond um, to to us jabbering away unprofessionally for all these uh, all these years. So yeah, these these are the two bits that um I will miss more than anything.
0: Um, another somber note, uh, Simon. This is well, this month is your last lunch with article. Um, just before you. Before you jump in, I've got a couple of stats here that, that you had worked out. And I, looking at them, I actually can't believe them. But because you gave them to us, I'm sure they're absolutely right. You've written over three quarters of a million words.
2: Well, I took them out over, um, certainly approaching. I, I, it's, it's between, I tried to work it out lying in the bath the other morning. And it's between 720 and 750,000 words.
0: I, d- I did a small calculation. There's actually a website where you can, which I discovered from doing a speech recently, where you put in the number of words, and then it tells you how long they would take to read out. And uh, if you put, if you read all of those, you'd be busy for 96 hours.
2: Oh God,
4: <laughs> that is a
2: frightening thought. You'd be dead.
4: Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, it's it's much easier if you if you eat them and eat them, if you read them You've had too in, many in, lunch in words. kind of uh, <laughs> monthly bites. Um, Yes, I have just done the the final um, Lunch With article. The reason for this is that I've been incredibly lucky to uh, sit down and interview for long periods of time 125 pretty special people. And while motorsport is full of many more than 125 wonderful people, um, it is becoming harder and harder To talk to current motor racing stars because either they're not prepared to give you the time because they're living such high-pressure lives or they are prevented by all sorts of um, commitments to sponsors Um, they're prevented from really relaxing and, and and being themselves and saying what they really want and what concerned me was that whatever happened, because this series has worked well and people have been very kind about it, I didn't want it to sort of diminish and go out with a whimper. I thought what I had to do was when I thought that there was any danger of having to talk to people who weren't quite as strong or as interesting or as amusing or as surprising as all the others, then I ought to draw a line under Lunch With, but certainly not draw a line under my writing. I mean, I'm hoping that uh, Damien and his successor will allow me to continue to write for motorsport because it's a wonderfully satisfying magazine to write for because you know that the great majority of the readers are far better informed and far more enthusiastic and reading your words with much more understanding than would be the case if I were writing for any other magazine.
4: You've had a great cast list, Simon. One hundred and twenty five as we say, who and you say you know it's now increasingly hard to find the people you you'd like to talk to, but who are the ones you most regret not having a, been able to pin down well,
2: there are quite a few. I mean, there are people who sadly are no longer with us whom i I of course would have loved uh, to have been able to talk to. We would all love to have a conversation with Fangio, a conversation with Jim Clark. I did have a conversation, a couple of conversations with Jim Clark when I was a very young autosport reporter, but obviously nothing like this. Um, I suppose the man that I would have loved to have interviewed uh, would have been Bernie Eccleston. Because quite apart from anything else, he would have been terribly funny. Um, But I know exactly what Bernie would say. He would say, what do I want to do that for? Why should I do that? Are you going to pay me? How much money am I going to get? And Bernie would not particularly want to do it. Uh, I don't know if this is the moment, but to give you an idea of the sort of tone of voice we were able to get into these lunches, particularly some of the people who are perhaps not so well-known, but who are steeped um, in motorsport, Uh, Keith Green, delightful man who's been in motor racing all his life, son of uh, Sid Green, who was also involved in motor racing, I had lunch with him and Chris Craft together because Chris Craft had driven for Keith Green or Keith Green had been the manager of a team that Chris Craft had driven for for a long time at Le Mans and Chris Craft actually worked for Bernie when Bernie first bought the Brabham team and this is quite a long excerpt so you can always edit it if you want to but I said to Keith Green what was Bernie like and he said Bernie rang me up and said I've just bought Brabham like he was talking about buying a packet of fags. You fancy running it? Come and see me at 10 o'clock tomorrow. I tell you, Bernie was tough in those days. Today, he's a pussycat by comparison. He slept a maximum of four hours a night, ate like a sparrow, but always three-star Michelin sparrow food, of course. In his office, he had a desk you could have played football on, but there was never anything on it. He'd be on four phones at once around the world, checking up on everybody. His brain was incredible. And he never ever forgot anything anybody said and did you had to remember everything you talked to him about and a lot more you hadn't because he'd phone you up at 4am and quiz you about it uh that that's what i mean there's more about um uh, drivers saying to bernie that they wanted to have the best engine in the team and bernie just tossed a coin and said that's what your buddy having now shut up uh he 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 is an unusual man and and In fact, in an awful lot of my lunches, people like, for example, Jackie Stewart, uh, people who'd been in Formula One as drivers, as team bosses, I almost invariably said to them, what do you think of Bernie Eccleston? Do you think he's a good egg or a bad egg? And inevitably, even the ones who'd had problems and difficulties and arguments with Bernie, in the end, they always had to say, Formula One is better off with Bernie than without Bernie. If we didn't have Bernie, Formula One would not be where it is today.
0: Talking about Bernie, uh, just to give people an idea of kind of the, the depth and range of um, the characters that you interviewed, uh, I'm just gonna read out the bees: Julian Bailey, Rubens Barrichello, Derek Bell, Martin Brain, Mark Blundell, Bill Body, Kenny Brack, David Brabham, Ross Braun, Eric Broadley, David Brodie, Robert Brooks, Tony Brooks, Martin Rundle. Those are just the bees. There's, I mean, an amazing, <laughs> number of people and so diverse as well um but i thought in light of his passing a few weeks ago i'd love to go one letter earlier and talk about chris amon mm. because he was one of your greatest lunch widths from your perspective as well as the readers he,
2: he absolutely was um i mean chris amon's great days in motorsport when he was driving for ferrari um, they didn't really coincide with me. I was a motoring journalist by, or motorsports journalist by then, but I wasn't really covering Grand Prix. I was covering kind of club meetings at Lytton Hill. So I never really knew Chris Ayman in period. He then disappeared to New Zealand, and so he was a man that I had admired from afar. I also knew, just from having followed what he was doing when he was in Formula One, that he was, in terms of speed, one of the very quickest of his day. I mean, he was one of the top three drivers in terms of actual speed and ability during his era. He was an unaggressive man, maybe uh, this is not so much in the cockpit as outside it. Um, And when I did my uh, lunch with him, he said that Max Mosley, when he was first driving for March, had promised him his retainer in three chunks and he got his first chunk, his first four-monthly chunk. Uh, the second one, he had to chase and chase and chase. Did eventually get it. His third one, he never got it. And he said, you know, Max Mosley still owes this to me today. But it's somehow so typical of Chris Amon. He just shrugged and left it at that. He, he wasn't an aggressive, hard man doing deals or in the paddock. And that equates with his unassuming modesty he's about the only formula one driver i've ever met who wasn't arrogant or egotistical i mean a lot of them are very charming and they hide their arrogance and their um, selfishness but in order to be a great formula one driver you have to be absolutely loaded down with self-belief and they all are some of them hide it better than others. But Chris was genuinely uh, uh, an uh, unpretentious man, I think is the best way I can say it. He was also incredibly, he didn't really know me from Adam, uh, but I went to New Zealand, I got in touch with him and said, um, I'm going to be able, I was actually in Australia at the time, it sounds very good to say You know, I went to lunch in New Zealand implying that I actually flew from Heathrow to New Zealand I was actually in Australia and I worked out that I could go to Auckland still a fair old distance uh, and I could be there for 24 hours and I managed to get in touch with Chris Ayman and said look um, I I know you live a long way from Auckland but is there any way that I could sort of get to you and we could have a bit of a lunch and, and, and I could interview you And he said, look, come to Auckland, I live in Lake Torpo, and I'll come to you. And once I'd got my head round the geography of New Zealand, he actually drove for six hours to come and have lunch with me. And we had lunch for maybe three hours, and then he turned round and went home again. Which is an extraordinarily unselfish thing to do. And he didn't just want to talk about himself, he wanted to talk about his mates in Formula One particularly. Uh, What I always did with these lunches was I would say to the guest, I will have lunch with you anywhere you like. You choose your venue. I don't mind where it is. And uh, as I've said in the piece that I just wrote for for Motorsport, they varied enormously. Brian Redman wanted to go to a fish and chip shop. Uh, Keke Rosberg said he didn't eat lunch and he'd like a cup of coffee. Um, Lots of other similar ones like that. Uh, but he said, yes, I know exactly where I want to eat. And he took me to, or he, I met him, he sent me instructions, and I met him at a funny little cafe in a rather um, sort of suburban part of Auckland. And we had a perfectly good but not very smart lunch there. And he said, do you know why I chose this place to eat? Next door... Have a look next door. And we went out of the restaurant. And we looked next door, it was a sort of semi detached building. And next door, there was what looked like a disused small garage and filling station with a little flat upstairs. And he pointed to the upstairs window and he said, That's where Bruce McLaren was born. This was Pop McLaren's little garage, and that's why I wanted to come here. And in a way, that kind of sums up Chris Amon. Just an extraordinary man. I mean, I could talk all night about some of the people who really stuck with me. Sid Watkins, um, who I think everybody in Formula One, when he was the the, the, the Formula One doctor, everybody adored him. Uh, he was no respecter of persons. He would be equally as rude uh, to Bernie Eccleston or to... Um, some minor marshal but he would also be equally friendly to anybody and I got to know him reasonably well in in the paddock and I was only um, you know I was just a kind of one of the hordes of journalists smelling around but um, he saw me walking uncomfortably once in the paddock spa and he looked at me and he said what the hell's the matter with you lad and I said oh, Sid, I've, I've got a bad back and he said well Come and see me, we'll see what we can do about it. Well, I was simply too shy and diffident to do that. I mean, Sid Watkins was looking after Formula One drivers. And um, no way did I feel that a minor journalist should go and see him about his bad back. And uh, so I finally went to see another back specialist who said, yes, we can give you um, a very complicated operation. Um, and it'll cost your insurers X thousand pounds and we'll see you on Monday. On the Sunday, the day before, I was at a motor racing dinner and Sid was there and I said to Sid, you'll be very pleased with me, Sid, because I'm finally doing something about sorting out my back. And he said, oh, good show, lad. Who's doing it? So I told him the name of the man who was doing it and he said, don't let him near you, lad. Give me a ring in the morning, I'll sort you out. So, having had a rather sleepless night, I thought, well, Sid was into his third whiskey, so I'm sure this man I'm seeing in Harley Street is pretty good. And I don't really want to bother Sid Watkins with all this. So I did nothing and got my little bag packed to go off that Monday afternoon to have my operation. And at about ten past one, my mobile phone rang. I don't know where Sid got my mobile phone. He said... Hell lad, you haven't phoned me. I told you last night to phone me. What's going on? Now cancel that, art, uh, cancel that man you're seeing this afternoon and I'll do you tomorrow. So I did as I was told. I cancelled the man. Sid Watkins operated on my back. And it's a very long story, but I mean that shows you the sort of man Sid Watkins... He treated, as I say, Bernie Eccleston and a minor journalist in exactly the same way. And when I went to have lunch with him... Uh, we had lunch in his kitchen, and I was, I'd arrived there, um, I'd flown up to Edinburgh, and I'd um, hired a little car, and I was ready to fly back that afternoon. But lunch, sitting around his kitchen table, cooked by his lovely wife Susan, went on. And suddenly it was half past six, and Sid said, well, we'd better go out to dinner, lad. So we went out to dinner. We came back from dinner. We sat in Sid's uh, study, got out a bottle of single malt whiskey and the stories kept coming until three in the morning and I then crawled into his spare room bed slept for three hours and then crept out of the house next morning at six o'clock went and caught a later plane wonderful man, just just extraordinary
4: I was going to say uh, I was chatting to Derek Warwick about Sid at the Motorsport Hall of Fame evening Sid was honoured this year as you know and um, he kept. I mean Derek had quite a few sizable accidents in Formula One, and he was telling me about dealing with Sid, and he he was talking about Monza in 1990, and how um, he'd felt fine and got in a spare car, Sid got him out of it and said, I need to check you and what's your name and so on and so forth. And Derek had told him, oh, Nelson Piquet. And um, Derek, and Sid had said, no, I need, you know, you've got to be serious about this. And Derek mucked him around for a while until Sid got Bernie and said, tell him, unless, he answered my question sensibly. He's not. He's not racing. At which point Derek came round and so on and so forth. Three years later, he rolled during the morning warm-up at Hockenheim, finished upside down in the gravel. Went to see Sid, and um, Sid checked him over and his found, but he found a bit of gravel in his ear, and he got it out and said, "I think this one might be from Monza in 1990," <laughs> which I just, which I just thought was as uh, a, well just just a lovely, yeah. lovely
2: anecdote. Yeah. I mean, I'm always asked, um, you know, who was my favourite? And it's a question I never answer because they're all so different. I mean, you imagine Richard Petty, this emperor of NASCAR.
4: It can't possibly be disappointing talking to Richard Petty. Well,
2: amazing. I mean, I I was being shown round the museum that he's got in his place um, by one of his acolytes. And the door at the other end of the museum opened and this enormously tall man, even taller because he was wearing high heel cowboy boots and had a cowboy hat (laughs) uh, and the dark glasses and he was carrying this little red cup and I'm delighted to say the um, article that's coming out in Motorsport, there is a shot of Richard Petty and you can see the little red cup. The reason for the little red cup is of course he chews tobacco. And every so often, I mean, it's very polite and, you know, well-behaved and charming. But every so often, the red cup would come up and a little jet of (laughs) tobacco juice would shoot out of it. Um, But uh, extraordinary, because when you actually probe under these people, as you know, Richard Petty's son raced not as well as Richard Petty. Richard Petty's grandson also raced And by the time he was 18, he looked as though he was going to be every bit as good as his grandfather. And at the age of 19, he was killed. And in his memory, uh, Petty, who owns thousands of acres round his little bit of Carolina, um, set up a place which is really like a smaller version of Disney World, um, with all the appropriate rides and stuff. Uh, and this is for children who are terminally ill or children who are desperately badly disabled. has a full medical staff running it. And Petty just said, uh, come down the road and I'll show you this place I've got. He, I mean, I've never read anywhere else about Richard Petty doing this. He doesn't make a fuss about it, but he just does it because it reminds him of his grandson. Extraordinary man. As we're on Americans, I, I know I'm inter- you're about to ask a question, but I, I just have to tell
0: one of my favourite. This, fav- this is a, such an easy presenting job. It's great. Please, <laughs> oh, please carry on.
2: Stopping me talking is never easy. Um, I went to do Mario Andretti, another huge hero of mine. Mario Andretti lives in an extraordinary circular house. And in the basement, sort of going round the circle, there are garages in which he's got various cars, all of which are on the button. And after we'd talked in his house for a bit, he said, okay, let's go and have some lunch. So we went round and he kind of walked around selecting a car, selected a Lamborghini Countach. We got into this Countach and roared off down the road into downtown Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which is where where Mario Andretti's dad and Aldo and Mario, his two sons, settled when they came in as immigrants. Mario was 14. So typical of Mario, he could now live anywhere in the world, but he still lives in this rather one-horse town of Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which is where he arrived, speaking no English at all, at the age of 14. So we went to downtown Nazareth, PA, and it's not really full of Michelin restaurants. He took me to um, (coughs) a hamburger joint, and we ate a hamburger. But of course, Mary also owns a vineyard in California, in Napa Valley. And he'd made sure that he'd obviously phoned ahead to the um, hamburger joint and said, when you serve us our hamburger, do make sure there's a bottle of my wine on the table. Now, the other half of this question is that I also went to see A.J. Foyt in Texas. Uh, And the way that happened was that I was having lunch with, for motorsport, Kenny Brack, who, of course, won the Indy 500 for A.J. Foyt. and He was saying you know, who haven't you done yet? And who would you like to do? I said, God, I'd, I'd love to do AJ Foyt, but I kind of, I mean, AJ Foyt is 80 and not the easiest of men. Um, and I didn't quite know how to approach it. And Kenny said, well, I've got his mobile phone. I've, I've got his number on my mobile. I'll dial him up. So he dialed Texas. It was probably then about breakfast time in Texas. And he said, uh, hi, AJ, it's Kenny Brack here. Chit chat, chit chat. He said, no, I'm with a an English journalist who'd like to come out and interview you. There was a very long pause at the end of the phone. And then AJ, I, I could sort of hear, you know, listening to Kenny <laughs> Brack's phone. Uh, and after this long pause, I could hear AJ Foyt's text and voice saying, Is this Limey a good guy? <laughs> so Kenny said, yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. You better tell him to come. So I flew to um, to Texas. I went to see A.J. Foyt, who was marvelous, rather large now, but absolutely as uncompromisingly Texan as he always was. And he took me to a hamburger joint uh, because he's he's not in um, in urban, uh, you know, uh, he he he's right out in the wilds, really, and there's just kind of Texan planes, nothing around, and there's a little one-horse tower which has a hamburger joint. So he said, "We'd better go and have a hamburger. Will that do you? And of course, i was so anxious to say the right thing, and, and, and sort of stay on the right side of this rather terrifying old man, that I said, oh yes, AJ, hamburgers are great. In fact, when I went to see Mario Andretti, we had a hamburger. <laughs> Big mistake. Because <coughs> of course, I'd forgotten that AJ Foyt and Mario Andretti have history. Uh and he kind of when I said this, the temperature in the in the room went down a couple of degrees. Anyway, we went to have our hamburger and in the middle of um in the middle of lunch, AJ looked across at me and said,
1: How's your hamburger?
2: I said, was oh, AJ, it's very good, it's lovely. Is it better than Andretti's? <laughs> <laughs>
3: I think um like Simon, I struggle to pick a favourite from the 125 because there've been so many. They're all special in their own different ways. The American ones uh, I did particularly enjoy often because there was a they were so incongruous really that um, the way this this worked as from my perspective as editor was that Simon was a was a dream journalist to work with because. Um, We'd get together once a month when he came in uh, and uh, he'd have a list of names and I'd have a list of names and we'd talk through potential targets and we'd always try and keep three or four ahead so we always knew what was coming up and um, we'd agree on on who to go for, Grand Prix drivers, sports car drivers, engineers, team owners Um, and Simon would go off and he was brilliant because he would organise everything himself, I wouldn't have to do anything. Um, so James Mitchell who was the the regular photographer in the UK and Europe he'd phone James organized James tell him where to be what time he had to be there and James lives in Italy so that wasn't straightforward either um, you know and he would he would contact the, the subject, and he would organize where to meet the subject would choose the lunch venue um, so that's something we can talk about in, in, in a second I'm sure about some of the, the choices that we, uh, we've made and the American ones as I say they they were um, these incredible names, Andretti and Foyt and Petty and, you know, um, John Force, the drag racer, you know, and the, the, what I used to like picturing from the office was this um, English gentleman with this cut glass English accent, which I remember mostly from uh, BBC Radio Le Mans reports when you used to do those uh, growing up and you get the hourly reports from Le Mans, you know, Simon's voice is just so distinct. And to imagine him with that accent sitting down next to AJ Foyt. And talking, you know, it was the most. Yeah, but the thing uh, that I, I can see from um, um, Simon's work is that he had an ability to talk to anyone, and whoever, it, whatever background they came from, um, Simon allows them to say, tell their story, and has a style that doesn't interrupt them, doesn't allow them, doesn't uh, interfere with the with the with the copy. And uh, five and a half thousand words later. It would come in on my email, and I wouldn't have to touch hardly a word. It would always be pretty much word perfect, and that it would be printed in the magazine in, in that way. Um, and it, you know, it's been one of the pillars of, ma- of the magazine for the past ten years, along really with Nigel Robuck's reflections column. That, that those those two articles, the two things that readers always talk to me about, a, a bit as being special. Um, and there were, it was so easy. It should have been so much more difficult, but because Simon put so much work in, and the research that would go in before he had to go and see the the, the, the subject, um, and then the time taken to transcribe. Journalists always complain about transcribing interviews because it, it's a laborious process. Even if you're listening to A.J. Foyt, it still takes a lot of time. So much effort and time went into these articles, and I think the body of work that we've got, um, this you know quarter of a million words um, over 10 years, um, I think it's second to none in terms of a series of interviews with motor racing personalities. I don't think anything will ever touch it.
0: I actually talking about the words coming in, word perfect. I remember quite soon after arriving at motorsport, um, I thought I was given lunch with to put it to fit on the page or something, and I seem to remember putting hyphens in where they shouldn't have been. This is before I'd learned the hyphen rule properly. And Simon came in and said, "Who's done this?" <laughs> and not not knowing 100% quite sort of how serious the problem it was um, I put my hand up and <laughs> I'm amazed you ever forgive me actually forgave me actually. well
3: w- one of the things obviously so Simon is you know um, he's not one of the staff he's a freelance writer who who um, uh, contributes to the magazine each month um, now no other writer is allowed to come into the office to actually sub their copy on page but because it's Simon we uh, we turn a blind eye and allow him to so he always comes in but the thing is as you know Ed we, we wouldn't miss those occasions because usually there's stories to tell about the most recent lunch he's, he's had and the adventures and things that maybe couldn't go into print of, of um, which there were many i think absolutely and, the, and then obviously yeah there's um if, if anyone's um added anything that they shouldn't have done it's always it's always been highly amusing um but also that's also the, tr- the time when we get to talk about what comes next as well and um i've really enjoyed those meetings because you have this you know potential list of names around the world and who who can we get to and we we've had some big targets that you've managed to track down. Jackie Ix was on the list for a long time, mm. and he's not an easy man to track down. Jackie, and 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 you know, he was a, he was a fantastic lunch because oh, you wonderful. you were invited to his home in. in well,
2: in not only was I invited to his home, and I mean this says something about Jackie Ix. uh I went because this was the. I mean, always I had to travel as cheaply as possible, and I was happy to do that because uh, the less I dug into motorsports. Um, uh, budgets the more I would be able to do so I usually I was I became very adept at finding the cheapest flights from A to B and the cheapest way to go to Brussels which is where Jackie X lives for some of the year, uh, he spends a lot of his year um, in Central Africa which is where his wife comes from uh, but anyway I went on the Eurostar to Brussels and uh, spoke to Jackie to make sure I knew exactly where his house was I, he, he lives right beautiful house right in the middle of the city Uh, so that I could get in the taxi and go to his door. And Jackie said, no, 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 no no nonsense about a taxi. I'll come and meet you. So Jackie Ix, you know, this journalist is arriving to interview him. He gets into his car, he goes to Brussels railway station, and he was standing on the platform waiting for me when I got off the train. That, I mean, Jackie Ix has always been one of my all-time heroes. That seemed to me extraordinary. Um, The reason why, it has to be said, the reason why so many people, so many of these great targets were prepared to talk to me was because of the reputation of motorsport. Now obviously there are some people, um, John Force the drag racer and his three daughters, who are also drag racers, and I mean that's a whole other story because two of them came to the lunch, he might not have been a a monthly reader of motorsport but i mean so many of the um uh, of the guests whether they were um current generation or whether they were perhaps racing in the 50s or 60s they all knew motorsport and because i was coming from motorsport there was a sort of acceptance that the magazine was not going to waste their time it was a magazine for people who It was read by people who understood and who knew what the sport was about. And that was an enormous help. Dan Gurney is an example of that. Um, I got onto Dan Gurney whom I knew slightly, but not that well. And uh, we were communicating by email and I sent him an email and explained what I wanted to do. And he emailed straight back and he said, look, I'd love you to come and have lunch with me. Please come and have lunch. Come over to Santa Ana, California. Um, but I'm not going to allow you to interview me because for the last 20 years, I've wanted to write a book about my life. A lot of things have happened to me in motorsport. I think I ought to write a book. And I really don't want to sit and be interviewed by you for motorsport and give you all my best stories. So, sorry, come to lunch, but you're not allowed to interview me. The next, I received that email at, I don't know, seven o'clock one evening at 11 o'clock the next morning and I mean that must have come very early in the morning because Dan's in California I got another email from Dan and he said I've thought over what you said last night but I've always liked motorsport that green one so what the hell come over and I'll tell you my stories and we sat surrounded by, we sat in in Dan's uh, workshops, which are still very much working, uh, with a Formula One eagle sort of within touching distance, and had a wonderful afternoon with Dan Gurney. And it was really, he agreed to do it because of the respect he had for for, uh, motorsport. I don't want to talk too much about Americans, but um, another uh, guest who really stays with me is... Roger Penske now Roger Penske as we all know is a huge figure. I mean he aside from motor racing He's a huge business figure globally. He's worth two billion dollars and I wanted to talk to Roger Penske. I fortunately knew uh, Somebody who is very high up in Penske's organization who has Roger's ear And finally the word came back that Penske had just bought he buys companies all over the world all the time, and he just bought Marinella Concessionaires, who are the Ferrari dealers in this country, the Ferrari importers. He just bought it, and he was coming in in one of his executive jets. He's got six executive jets, one of which has transatlantic capability. He was landing at 6:30 a.m. at I think Fair Oaks, some sort of little executive airport. And he would meet me at 6.30am outside Maranello Concessionaires and he would spend 20 minutes having a cup of coffee with me. That's all he was going to give me. But because it was Roger Penske, I thought, well, I've got to have that 20 minutes. And he'd also said to me, I'm not interested in looking back. I don't remember when I raced the Zarek Special in 1961. I'm not interested in looking back. I look forward. This is a man who's nearly 80 and he's still buying companies and running huge organisations. He said, I don't look back, I look forward. But I've done all my research. I think the least you can do when you're going to go and meet these people is make sure you know all about them. And if, when you start talking to them and you can show in the first 10 minutes of conversation that you have done your research and you do know everything they've done in motorsport and even where they went to school and all this stuff, then they start to take you seriously. And some of this was sitting in the back of Roger Penske's car. Some of it was following him round while he was going to look at the stores department at Maryland Concessionaires because he would just bought it and he wanted to look at it all. But I did get about three hours of Roger Penske. thought of three interrupted hours, but it was enough to make a piece. And he did say at the end... You've reminded me of things that I'd completely forgotten about. I don't remember doing that race at Watkins Glen in
4: nineteen sixty-two, but you've just reminded me. the The overriding impression I've always had from reading lunch is that it's a very comfortable experience. I mean, you don't have to name names, but I mean, have they all been comfortable, or have there been some awkward ones? Uh,
0: <laughs> that smile says it all. It? Yes.
2: Um, <laughs> I I don't know whether I should mention names. There there are, um, well, there are a couple of people, and I'm not going to say their names, but Damien knows who they are. A couple of people, I always said to Damien, look, I will do anybody, but there are two people I don't want to have lunch with. And in the end, I did have lunch with both of them. Um, And the piece came out all right, but for different reasons, neither of them were a particularly comfortable experience. But actually, I mean, I've just scribbled down on, on the train coming here, um people i mean Pat simmons very nice man um but obviously the elephant in the room talking to Pat Simmons would be how he was um his career was completely broken because uh it was shown that he had um as it was thought then he effectively manufactured a serious cheat um he was as we all know he was working for Benetton um Uh, Nelson Piquet Jr. was encouraged to have a deliberate accident to improve the situation for his teammate Alonso. This all came out and uh, Pat Simmons, who had been a sort of um, central Formula One figure for a long time, was banned from Formula One for five years. Flavio Briatore, his team boss at Benetton, was banned for life, although Briatore never admitted what he'd done. Pat Simmons, and I wrote down the quote, Pat Simmons said and and he is a nice and honest and honourable man I should point out, Pat Simmons said when I was at school I learned there were two rules. One is tell the truth the other is don't Welsh on your friends so Pat Simmons uh, what happened was that Nelson Piquet Jr. fell out with the team and in order to injure them He said, well, I was told by my team to have this deliberate accident Uh, Pat Simmons said it's true Give me my punishment and he was pushed out of Formula One for five years. Fortunately. He's now back Uh, Flavio Briatore was told go away and don't come back again ever although Briatore said unlike Pat Simmons nothing to do with me, but when I had my lunch with Pat Simmons The thing that he then said was, actually what happened, was that it was Nelson Piquet Jr's idea to do this. He came to us and said, look, why don't I have this accident? He did that because he was trying to curry favour with the team who were getting very fed up with him and wanted to fire him. Now that's the sort of little extra thing which sneaks out when you're having lunch with somebody ten years after the event. And I love that sort of thing. I mean, there's another one which sneaked out 50 years after the event. And this was when we had we had a, a lunch which was tremendous fun, um, which was celebrating motorsport's 90th, anniversary, 90th yeah. um, anniversary. And we got together a group of present and past motorsport people. And the oldest was Michael T, who was the son of the proprietor of motorsport back in the day and worked for the company as a photographer and he was photographing the British Grand Prix at Aintree in 1955 and we all know what happened at Aintree in 1955 the two Mercedes being driven by uh, Fangio the world champion and Sterling Moss and in all the races Fangio won with Sterling following him obediently home, but at the British Grand Prix, Sterling Moss won, and Fangio followed him home, and Sterling has said to me on several occasions, Do you know, boy, I've never known whether I really beat Fangio Fair and Square or whether he let me win. And I asked the old bugger about it, and he'd just give me a smile, would never answer. Now, when we were having lunch with Michael T., the photographer, You've got to remember that racing circuits now have television coverage of every millimetre. They have observers, marshals, usually grandstands, round every inch. But in those days it wasn't like that and over at the back of the circuit at Aintree uh, there was no television, no proper television of course in those days. There were no spectators at that part. But Michael T, wanting to get a different photograph, had actually walked over to the back, of the, uh, uh, the back of the circuit and was photographing there by a tree. No protection for photographers, of course, but he wanted to be by a tree so that if a car went out of control and looked as though it was going to hit him, he could dart behind the tree. No digital cameras in those days. You had to have film, obviously, and he was shooting, and uh, Moss and Fangio were going round. Moss was actually ahead at this point, Fangio was following him and Michael T needed to reload his camera, needed more film so he went behind the tree to reload his camera and as he did this he saw to his astonishment Fangio making a rare mistake shooting across the grass half spinning managing to get the car back together again, getting back onto the circuit, having lost probably a quarter of a minute. And uh, unfortunately he was behind the tree, so of course he didn't take a photograph of it. Apparently nobody else saw that. And when Michael T told us that story, I instantly telephoned Sterling and said, look, did you know this? Fangio caught him up but didn't pass him. And when I looked at the reports, there was one point, there was one particularly good report, probably Dennis Jenkinson in motorsport, which covered the race minutely. And it did mention that there was one point in the race where the gap between Moss and Fangio, sometimes Fangio was leading, leading, sometimes Moss was leading, but they were always together. But there was one point in the race where suddenly Fangio was 13 seconds behind, and this was unexplained. And it took... 50 years, 60 years uh, before Motorsport was able to publish what really happened at the British Grand Prix in 1955. And Sterling was astonished, he never knew because Fangio kept that a secret till he died. Didn't,
3: um, just to remember, didn't Fangio blame Michael T for it as well? Yeah, blame because Michael he was blame Michael, Michael, oh, Michael I, was I, his breaking point, wasn't he? Oh, and then, that's he, and then he moved.
2: Right. I'd forgotten that, yes, yeah. yes, and he, absolutely. And he, he saw
3: him in the paddock afterwards and said, You moved. <laughs>
2: That's right. that's why he went off. (laughs) That's even better. Yeah, Yeah. amazing, amazing.
0: This this seems like I've got lots of readers' questions here, which we'll come on to in a second. Sure. Um, But it seems like a good idea to tell all of our listeners about the Mercedes-Benz World promotion that we have. Um, Visit mercedes-benz.co.uk forward slash simulator and you can go and try the Summer Simulator Challenge at Mercedes-Benz World. If you or your family have always wanted to get a taste of what it's like to drive an F1 car around Silverstone's British Grand Prix circuit, Then visit the simulator zone at Mercedes-Benz World. There's three sizes of simulators including a full size F1 car and anyone over 1.2 meters tall can get a step closer to what it's like driving in a Mercedes-AMG Petronas Formula 1 car. You can do this up until the 4th of September and you can also set your fastest lap in the challenge where you could win a thrilling Mercedes-AMG GT driving experience or an under 17s driving experience which includes five under-17s one-hour driving experiences, and also an under-17s Mercedes AMG A45 experience. Uh, The winner will also receive a winner's trophy. Uh, Some terms and conditions, all Mercedes-Benz World exhibitions and attractions are subject to availability and may change on a day-to-day basis. Please contact them on 0370 400 4000 to check exhibition availability and avoid any disappointment. And that competition ends on 4th of September. So Simon, the the reader's questions. Um, There's one I really like here from someone called Anthony Jenkins. And um, he is saying how much he's always loved lunch with. And his question is, which lunch partner most differed from your preconceptions going in?
2: Very good question, Anthony, because one does have preconceptions. um, And uh, the preconceptions are inevitably based on what one has been able to read. I mean, particularly the people who were racist in the past. It's hard to um, answer directly except I, I will mention one driver whom I already knew but only socially because I wasn't working in Formula 1 when he was racing and that was Tony Brooks um, whom one still sees around at BRDC dues and he, he's still um, pretty fit and well um, and when he was driving uh, in Formula 1 he was both uh, with Sterling Moss at Van Wool, um, and he then went to Ferrari, and he was able to say, "I mean, I'd never really known how good he was because driving with Sterling Moss, and knowing that Sterling Moss and who can blame him, always had in his contract a deal with uh whoever he was driving for that he had to have the best equipment, so if, in practice, one car proved to be the better than the other, Sterling was able to shift to that car. Tony Brooks um, was, on occasion, every bit as quick as Sterling and won Grand Prix when he was in the Van Wall team. But I kind of expected that he would want me to know that. And what I hadn't expected was that he all he would say was that he thought Sterling Moss was the greatest driver of his era, I kind of pushed him to try and say, yeah, but he was always able to get the best equipment and you were able, sometimes you out-qualified him. Didn't want to say it. What he also said, and this was another surprise, um, as you'll remember, Anthony, he then went from Van Wall to Ferrari. And I was hoping for some stories about infighting and politics and Enzo being an old bastard and Tavoni being difficult and all of that. He said no. He said Ferrari was a happy team. And I mean, I scribbled down here to remind me, um, the people, if you include the sports car drives, he said Ferrari was a happy time. And he said, look at the people I raced with in my team. Dan Gurney, Phil Hill, Cliff Allison, Jean Barra, all great people. And whatever Enzo was doing and whatever Tavoni was saying, we had a good time
0: amazing. The, um, I've got lots of bullet points here of things to bring up and actually amazing we are we are getting through them. But uh, the one I would love to hear about is is the Ron Dennis lunch with because oh. it wasn't any normal lunch as, as it would never be with Ron, would it?
2: With Ron Dennis, nothing is normal. Um, yeah. Through uh, I mean, Ron Dennis is like most people in modern Formula One, very difficult to, con- to contact directly. Fortunately, uh, the um, PR at McLaren is Matt Bishop who we've all known as a journalist before he became an extremely competent PR at McLaren and so as Matt was an old mate I was able to say to him over a long period of time Matt for God's sake you've got to get me in to see Ron finally Matt called me and said look Ron has agreed to have lunch with you in the McLaren technology centre and I'd said to Matt look, it's no good having you know, a quick bowl of muesli or whatever Ron Dennis eats. Um, I've got to have him for three hours. And Matt finally said, "Ron has agreed that he will have lunch with you, and he will sit over lunch with you for up to three hours." So all excited, I went to the McLaren Technology Centre, and I was told to be there for 12:30. And I arrived. Matt greeted me, and we went into the dining room where there was sort of Immaculate very nouvelle cuisine that you would imagine
0: from I remember the McLaren shaped (coughs) butter exactly exactly. (laughs) That's quite right
2: (laughs) and um, And we waited and we waited with Matt getting more embarrassed and finally at ten to two Ron arrived and he said I'm not having a good day and He left at half past two. So I had him for 40 minutes But, bless him, he did have the grace to feel embarrassed about this. And he said, look, I know you haven't got what you want, so Matt will get back to you and we'll sort out something else. So I said, fine. I said to Damien, look, we're not going to be able to have the lunch with Ron for a bit. Let's leave it and see what happens. Six weeks later, I had a phone call from Matt to say... Ron will see you this evening at his house. So I went to Ron Dennis's house, which is kind of unusual. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's, it's a sort of huge faux Georgian mansion. It's immaculate, as you can imagine. It has a big gravel drive in front of it. When I arrived, the big sort of gravel uh, area in front of the house was empty. And I parked my car neatly in one corner, hoping I was doing the right thing. And instantly, a sort of servant appeared at my elbow and said, "Um, I'm sorry, sir, but nobody's allowed to park here. You'll have to park round the back. So this huge gravel area, which looks as though it's arranged for guests to park their cars, they don't park their cars there. So I parked round the back. I went in through the kitchen... Actually, one of three kitchens, there are three kitchens in in Ron's house. Um, I was told to take my shoes off at the door, which of course I did. Ron wasn't there, but he arrived shortly afterwards, showed me around the house, which was astonishing and actually very nice. um, And very interesting, you know, it has an extraordinary subterranean um, um, sort of uh, reception room, which goes under the garden. The whole house is astonishing. And then there was no sign of any lunch or anybody, uh, any dinner or anybody going to service. It was now about seven o'clock at night. And Ron said, OK, let's go to the pub. So we got in one of Ron's many Mercedes and we went to a very ordinary little pub down the road and we sat in the corner and we had, I don't know, fish and chips or something. And we talked ...until they threw us out of the pub at closing time... ...and then we continued to talk... ...as we drove home... uh, ...drove back to, to, to Ron's house... ...and Ron was... ...extraordinarily... ...friendly... ...relaxed... ...honest... ...the one thing about him was... ...I've always made it a rule... ...often when you interview people they say... ...well can I see the copy before it goes to press... ...and I always say no... ...because if you allow the subject to sub your interview then they're going to change all sorts of things they're going to shift the emphasis in all sorts of ways and what will come over is not the real person so I never allow that and if somebody says I won't be interviewed unless you let me see the copy I say well I'm not going to interview you. Ron Dennis was the one exception I mean I know what a stickler for detail Ron is and how much he cares about every detail what you don't want to do is Publish the 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 piece, and then the man you've written about loathes it and is upset and wants to take you to court and all this sort of thing. Um, I've had people threatening to take me to court, but only about what other people have said, never about what they've said. Um, But with Ron Dennis, it was different, and I did say to Ron, "Okay, I'll let you see the copy." And he talked incredibly honestly about his childhood, about his hopes and fears as a 16-year-old mechanic. um, He also was very open about the fact that he is teased, not perhaps laughed at because people have too much respect for him, but about his um, almost um, sort of, uh, well, the word I don't want to use, but I'll use it, is his almost anal obsession with every detail And we talked about that, too, and where it had come from. Um, In the final copy, he only made two tiny changes. Uh, One was something about his parents, which I completely respected. I mean, I'd put it in the article, but, you know, not in a significant way, and it didn't damage it at all to remove it. And then there was one thing about his own obsessive character Um, Not so much about the character, which he was quite open about, but where it had come from. But he couldn't have been nicer. He was friendly, he was um, open, he was uh, available. Um, And and that was a surprise, really. But you get Ron on his home patch and away from a Formula One paddock. He is a very nice man who has achieved, when you actually remember what he has come from. You know, he lived in a two-up, two-down with his brother. Um, you know, his parents slept in one room, he and his brother slept in the other. They had no money. He started as an oily-fingered mechanic at the age of 16. He has built, and you go to the McLaren uh, Technology Centre, which you've all done, he has built the most extraordinary company. And I have boundless admiration for him.
4: I have to say, I mean, you. I'm sure most of us around this table have been to a McLaren dinner in the F1 paddock at some time or other. And once the lights are off, for the broader world of Formula One, Ron, when he lets his hair down with Fleet Street, mm. you you know when he starts playing drinking games. I mean, you do see a very very different side of him, mm. which the I mean, which the wider world just doesn't appreciate. Mm. Mm.
0: Uh, we we aren't slowly running out of time, which is um, and uh, we've got more to cover. Um, uh, I'm going to come on to Walter Wolf in a second, but. I'd just like to ask a question from Damon. Was it always a conscious effort to wear a pink shirt? <laughs> 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 Damon, for those of you who don't know, is the arts designer here at Motorsport, and he is currently, uh, well, he, is, he has put together the final lunch with, that has a, a sort of collage of all the lunches with, and the pink shirt apparently is there most of the time.
2: A- actually, if I'd thought about it, I would have tried to put on a pink shirt this morning. Um, do you really want the truthful answer? Go, go on I am, there are certain things, we've talked about Ron Dennis's peculiarities. I'm now going to tell you about one of my peculiarities. Um, there are certain things that I resent spending money on. And one of these is my clothing. I believe that clothes are worn in order to keep warm and to keep respectable, so you don't sort of show your naughty bits in public. There is no other reason to wear clothes. And I've no interest whatever in having clothes that are fashionable or will impress anybody it's just not what I do and most of my shirts I, I haven't looked at this one but most of my shirts are vintage I mean you know they look as though they've seen better days and for much of the last 10 years I've only really had one respectable shirt and it happened to be pink and that was the one I wore
0: that's brilliant. That's a, such a simple um normal reason. Uh, now, as I mentioned earlier, Walter Wolfe, he was actually one of my favourite lunches with, because it was someone that you just don't... I, I certainly had never read much about. Um, you'd read about him, you never actually hear from the man himself. D- I mean, what was that like talk, chatting to him? Because he's a, he's a slightly different character. It was extraordinary. He certainly is a different character.
2: Walter Wolfe, of course, had a pretty brief time in Formula One. You know, the Wolf team appeared... Uh, one, uh, um, uh, you know, one Grand Prix with Jody Schechter excuse me, um, and then disappeared again. And Walter Wolf was a larger than life character in the, in the Formula One paddocks while he was around. He was a, an Austrian, I think. I mean, his uh, true nationality was always a little bit vague. Um, but anyway, he was a wonderful character, and clearly had lots of money. Although it was quite difficult to find out where the money had come from. Um, he'd spent a lot of his time in Canada uh, which is where he'd been brought up and I discovered that he was living in a ranch somewhere in northern Canada and nobody ever went to see him and he never went to see anybody and he was just sitting in this ranch but I was able to find out the address or certainly an email address Um, and so I emailed Walter Wolf and said who I was and said You know, I know you've had nothing to do with Formula One for a bit, but it would be great just to sit down to to lunch and and, and talk about it. And I'll come to you, you know, in your deserted, your your, uh, isolated ranch, if that's convenient for you. I mean, unfortunately, he then, he very um, sweetly and very quickly emailed me back and said, yes, I'll meet you for lunch. Don't mind doing that at all. Unfortunately, he didn't... uh, Uh, Suggest I went to his ranch because he said he had to be in Vancouver on business So I met him in Vancouver, although I did ask him about his ranch and he said (laughs) That he said well it was kind of a large place and he had a very big dog Which he wanted he's a fairly aggressive man anyway, but he said he had this very big dog which lived in a kennel by the gate uh, to try and repel borders as it were but he said he had a notice by the dog which said Never mind the dog, beware of the owner. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, I met him in Vancouver and I knew that quite a lot of Walter's business life uh, was something that I expected he wasn't going to want to talk about. And I had said to him in my email, look, Walter, I don't want to talk about any of the rest of your life. That's your business. I just want to talk about your time in Formula One and the people you worked with and what it was like having J.D. Schechter as your driver, all that sort of thing. And he said, fine. Well, we got through all that. Very nice lunch. He brought along, I mean, he is a man of 75, I think. He brought along an absolutely gorgeous girl, who was about 25, whom he introduced as his wife. Um, And when I sort of, I can't remember, but in some tactful way, I said, you know, Really nice, you know, you've got a young one. Well, I can't remember how I put it But he said his wonderful answer was he said yeah He said well all this modern technology you have to have a wife who's young enough to know how to turn on the TV <laughs> 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 um, But anyway, we got through all his racing stuff and then um, We seemed to have sort of used up all of that so I very differently asked him something about his other business life I said something like, Do you enjoy living in Canada now? And he said, No, no, he said, It's not that. He said, I can't come back to Europe because Interpol have got a warrant out for my arrest. <laughs> so, an unusual guy.
0: Um, so many stories, and uh, we are very sadly coming to an end, but there's decided um, to fit in one more, one more question. Um, this is from Steve Hatcher, who's um, got a few questions here, but he said, um, Bar the, the longest and the o- those other ones, who was the most amusing? guest you had for lunch with
2: uh goodness several of them were very funny um some of them were funny because they told wonderful funny stories some of them were funny just because of their manner um i mean patrick head who's another guy that i respect hugely um but patrick um You know, he, he he has a loud voice. He says exactly what he thinks. He kind of booms at you. And um, he he's wonderfully to the point, and actually in his sort of rather upper-class way, he's very funny. Um, you get someone like well, Keith Green, we mentioned earlier. The lunch with Keith Green and Chris Craft between them was hilarious. Um, I, unfortunately, quite a lot of it wasn't publishable because either it was totally libelous or it was pretty disgusting really (laughs) but it was very funny Um, let me think who else Um.
0: I I remember um, hearing from a friend of mine who works at CNN that they did a a piece on Williams and they went to the factory and Patrick showed them round and um, they said are we allowed to film all this yes yes absolutely film away film away so they did this five minute film about Williams Grand Prix Engineering and they sent it to the PR person and not a single shot could they use because Patrick had basically told them to film everything that they weren't allowed to film
2: (laughs) (laughs) so that's typical yeah absolutely absolutely Um, I'm trying to think who else was funny
3: there was um, a couple I remember Uh, Dave Brody was was a a good one I I needed a bit of convincing to do Brody because although I knew about him and I know a lot of sports readers know about him he's not exactly a household name that I can put on the front cover of the magazine in terms of trying to help sell issues so Simon wore me down and, and convinced me and I'm glad he did because that was a very funny one and again lots of stuff I think that uh, didn't actually make the final article um, Perry McCarthy was a was a good one he was actually uh, the 100th lunch with he was he was um, yeah. and he was a fill-in for, for Jensen Button yeah and um, unfortunately um Jensen, as good a chap as he is, is one of the few people to have blown us out for lunch. Where we had had a date arranged, and uh, a message came through via his PA via McLaren's PR that Jensen couldn't make it, which is a bit disappointing. And, uh, but, but Perry filled in was actually and was hilarious. He so was uh, very
2: funny. And yeah. I mean, just to be fair to Jensen, um, Jensen is the only uh, Formula One driver of the current generation. Uh, that agreed to do lunch with and and was aware of motorsport and w- was very happy to do it, and we I, I was quite surprised that he said he would because inevitably current Formula One drivers don't want to do it for the reasons that we said earlier. You know they're terrified of what they're allowed to say, and what they're not allowed to say, and so on. And and Jensen was uh, quite happy to do it, and I think the reasons why he then couldn't were much more to do with the frenetic world of the modern Formula One driver than actually that he couldn't be bothered to come
3: it is it is better to get them when they're retired there 's no doubt about it and and we find this not just with lunch with but generally you know um, the, the subject matter tends to be um, uh, much more engaging when, when they've when they've had a, a time to step away from from the sport and actually reflect on things and
2: well actually yeah in my view it 's better to get them when they 've retired from Formula One they may still be in in motorsport I mean Mark Weber. Um, is, is an excellent example. When Mark Webber had come out of Formula One but was very busy uh, with his role with Porsche in endurance racing, um, he was very happy to find time to come and have lunch. Um, all he said was, when I said, what venue would you like, he said, I don't care where I go, mate, but it's got to have somewhere where I can land my helicopter. So I found a pub in Hampshire which had a field next to it And uh, he duly appeared, bang on time, landed his helicopter, we had a jolly good lunch. Um, He was fascinating about what Formula One was like and what he thought was wrong with Formula One. And as he'd been in it only 12 months before, that was fascinating. And then he got in his helicopter and off he went great
3: man i think what what disappoints me uh from a selfish point of view is i you know, simon and i have been talking about when the series should finish for for a good couple of years and i keep saying to him it's got more life in it it's got more life don't worry people love it keep 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 them coming um the thing that i'd have been intrigued by is in 10 15 years time um would have been to read lunch with lewis hamilton or sebastian vettel or fernando alonso and all the guys who are racing now and to see if in time, they become more accessible because at the moment they are very hard to get to. Even even for us, with our with our you know uh, fortunate position to have contacts and to be in you know Mark Hughes in the paddock, you know he, it's it's not easy getting in front of these people. And certainly away from a Grand Prix, it's almost impossible um, to to find out whether the current generation can be as entertaining and, and as funny uh, and as engaging as the older generations. And, you know, there's a lot of people who think that maybe they, they won't be. I happen to think that maybe they will be if you can get to them, and you can get beyond the the surface, you know, get under the surface.
2: Well, they're all intelligent people. I mean, this is the thing. Once they get out of this curious kind of gilded cage, I, I'm not sure about it. Lewis Hamilton I I don't know what he'll be like in 15 years time maybe he'll have even more tattoos but um, I think a lot of the people in Formula One uh, will be fascinating to talk once they've got the shackles of Formula One off them because you don't get to be Formula you don't get to be a world champion unless you're highly intelligent I I believe in fact here's a man I would have loved to have had lunch with, he's a man I knew well and I did have lunch with on many occasions but never in the motorsport context and that's James Hunt who sadly, um, you know, is no longer able to have lunch with me. But I do remember sitting after James had retired from Formula One, he still used to hang around in the uh, the Marlborough McLaren motorhome and we were sitting in the motorhome at a Grand Prix and he was uh, talking about his own world championship and what he'd done in his career. And he said, you know, Simon, you've got to believe, you've got to understand that uh, you can't be world champion unless you're an intelligent man. And at that point, Nelson Piquet walked past the
4: window and James looked out of the window and said, mind you, there are exceptions to every rule. <laughs> I have to say, Simon, uh, I think of the current crop, Sebastian Vettel, who I find very, very engaging, and I was lucky I interviewed him, Two or three times before he became world champion, and I have interviewed him since, and I think he's, with due respect to all of them, I think he's possibly the, m- the most intelligent racing driver I've ever encountered, and I I, th- I think in due course he will be, a, I think you, I think you should come out of retirement in ten or fifteen years' time to do Vettel, because I I th- I think I think I think he will be an absolutely gr- great. L- let's make a date for it.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, look, if 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 Damien or his successor. Um, if, if, if you're prepared to have me back when I'm 85 I'll be long uh, gone, sorry
3: <laughs>
2: I mean I'm quite happy to eat lunches in my 80s if I'm lucky enough still to be here and yes the, there are an awful lot of people who aren't able to have lunch with me now but perhaps will be able to then so watch this space
0: I have a suspicion this, this could become the, the uh, like many of your lunches extremely long, there are so many stories to hear but we are going to have to call it a day Simon thank you so much for spending so much time with us and, and recounting all the wonderful stories well it's that been have fun to do. from thank a wonderful you. series it is probably worth saying that you can actually read every single of the lunch with articles bar the last six months on the motorsport archive um they're all there if you've got 96 hours to spare you know now know how to sp- how to spend them um thank you very much for listening to another motorsport podcast in partnership with mercedes-benz and we'll see you next month for another motorsport podcast
1: bye bye for now The following offer expires 31st of August, participating retailers only. Make the most of this summer because it's gonna be gorgeous. There'll be blue cloudless skies, rolling countryside, beautiful beaches and warm balmy seas. To get out there and enjoy it, book your Mercedes-Benz in for its free summer health check as soon as you can. We'll top up the essentials like your windscreen washer fluid. We'll leave your air conditioning smelling delightful and we'll even get your car sparkling inside and out. And if for any reason summer doesn't turn out as expected, Never mind. At least you'll be able to enjoy your car. Visit mercedes-benz.co.uk to book your free summer health check today. Unmissable offers from Mercedes-Benz.